I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. I've had three days since the Robb Elementary shooting, three days since the massacre in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 school children were murdered and two teachers. And as a 19-year veteran of teaching in a public school, I have a lot of experience, a lot of strange experiences and absurdities and dysfunctions in situations that were dangerous or illegal or wrong in other morality ways. So this episode today is my episode on how absurd our school systems are and what it's really like to be a teacher in a public school. Okay, let's start with the situation at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas, because that's the story of this week. And as it relates to me as an educator, the first thing is actually sad. I was not surprised by that shooting. I wasn't shocked by that shooting. That was the 27th school shooting in the United States in 2022 alone. There have been 27 school shootings so far this year. 27 school shootings in our country so far this year. I keep repeating that number because I should be shocked, but I'm never shocked. As an educator, we always know that a school shooting is a possibility. But the specifics of this school shooting do relate directly to me, my experience, and my training as a teacher as well in strange ways. So let's get into the specifics of this school shooting. So the shooter in this instance, whose name I will not say on this episode because he does not deserve the notoriety or the historical footnote or whatever the buck he wants by going in there. So I won't say his name. But after getting in an argument with his grandmother, he arms up, shoots her, leaves a backpack full of ammunition in the courtyard at their house, goes with multiple other weapons to the school, drives the truck there, wildly crashes it in a ditch before going into the school. Because of that truck crash, the police responded on the scene immediately meaning the police department and officers, they were there for the full hour that this mass shooting took place. They were there for the full time. They were there responding to the crash. They were there confronting the gunman right away. Yet, the gunman had a full hour. The gunman had a full hour to be inside the school to execute children, to murder two teachers, to shoot at police officers. And if you read about it, you know that the police officers were unable to figure out how to get into the classroom. They were unable to figure out how to disarm the suspect. They were unable to figure out how to shoot him, how to kill him, 
how to end the attack for a full hour. And why? Well, because he was in tactical gear with military-style assault rifles. And that relates to our culture. Let's see. We allow angry 18-year-old boys to legally buy assault rifles on their 18th birthday. He bought two assault rifles legally on his 18th birthday. He's someone who has no friends. He has no girlfriend. Everybody who met him said he had trouble socializing. He was obsessed with first-person shooter video games. And this person who couldn't socialize, who was angry, who was obsessed with first-person shooter games, went out on his 18th birthday and legally bought two assault rifles. Did that trigger anything with local law enforcement? No. Because there are laws in our country protecting 18-year-old boys who want to buy assault rifles. Nothing pings with law enforcement. So that's a cultural problem. But I'm going to talk about high school boys and my experience with angry high school boys later in this episode. Instead, I'm going to say, well, how does this relate to me as a teacher? Well, as a teacher in a public school, in a public high school, we practice lockdowns, first of all. We practice for first-person shooter situations every year, multiple times a year. We practice different kinds of barricades. I teach my students in different classrooms and different school spaces how to barricade, how to drop all blinds, how to turn off lights, where to hide in the classroom, where bullets are least likely to go through the walls, where to hide in the classroom, where bullets are least likely to go through the windows and catch students, how to barricade classrooms, how to turn them dark, how to make it seem like nobody was ever in that room with the door locked, barricaded, lights off, shades down. We also teach our students when to run, how to run, how to evacuate, how to evacuate out windows, how to evacuate outdoors, when we should run, when we should hide, when we should stay. I'm supposed to take care of my students, and I would, or I hope I would, but maybe I wouldn't be brave. I don't know. I've never been in this first-person shooter actual live situation, although with 27 school shootings in our school system in the U.S. this year, who knows? It might happen during my career. I'm going to teach at least 11 more years, right? I'm supposed to protect my children, and if we evacuate, I'm supposed to run slower than the slowest student. So teachers are expected to die first, which I'm actually okay with. I don't want a kid to die before me. I'm older. I've lived longer. I've had a life. They can die after me. The problem is, in lots of school shootings, the teacher dies, and many in the class also die, and sometimes multiple teachers die. Almost never do administrators die, but teachers die. So we're expected to train, to barricade, to hide, to run. We're also expected to fight back. I was in a public school training where we were taught how to fight back with regular classroom implements. 
We were supposed to practice throwing different classroom implements, things like math textbooks. We were supposed to practice accurately throwing staplers. This sounds like a fucking joke, but it's not. A person comes in my classroom with multiple guns and tactical body armor on, and I'm supposed to accurately throw a stapler at the assailant. That was actually in a training I did. That's no joke. The police at Robb Elementary, who did have vests on, all of them, that could stop a bullet, and who did have guns, all of them, most of them were too afraid to confront the shooter. Most of them had a pistol and a vest. The majority of police officers had a pistol and a vest, and they were too afraid to confront the shooter. So these are trained police officers who are armed, who also are wearing protective gear, and they're too afraid to confront the shooter. Parents were begging police officers outside the school to give them their vests and their pistols so that parents, average untrained citizens, could go in and confront the shooter. But police officers held them back with their own weapons and did not go inside. And their excuse is that they were following protocol. They needed their tactical unit. But the tactical unit struggled to breach the classroom. For an hour, the police struggled to breach the classroom. Even with the tactical unit, helmets and plated armor and assault rifles. Because an 18-year-old who was angry and had trouble socializing and who had no girlfriend and who worked at Wendy's but made no friends and talked to no coworkers because an 18-year-old could go buy assault rifles and act out what he had practiced on video games only in an elementary school, shooting 10-year-olds and teachers. The police were too afraid to go in there. But I'm supposed to attack shooters with a stapler and with a textbook. So then there's the argument that teachers should be armed. And the first argument is the Israeli model where teachers each have a pistol. But the problem is the police officers had pistols and vests and they were too afraid to confront the shooter. So untrained teachers with pistols are supposed to confront the shooter. The other argument is meet force with force. So we're supposed to have tactical gear and assault rifles in our classrooms. But the thing is, gun safety means that you lock every gun, you have the key away from the gun, you have the ammunition away from the gun. So as that shooter comes in my classroom with plated armor on their vest and plated armor everywhere, helmets on, tactical helmets, assault rifles, pistols, shotguns, whatever the assailant is carrying. I'm supposed to run one direction to get the key, then run back the other direction to unlock my assault rifle, then run back the other direction to get the ammunition. I'm supposed to load that gun, throw on the vest, throw on the helmet, and then outshoot the shooter who's practiced on these first-person shooter video games, even though I don't play them. So really, I need an unlocked assault rifle. I need our ammunition in the assault rifle. I need the vest and helmet right next to the assault rifle. And I need to practice first-person shooting in video games so I can be as good as this fucked-up, angry 18-year-old kid is. That's what I need.
that's how you subdue the assailant. You're as angry and as fucked up as he is. Then you can shoot him because you have the same level of skill and training as that 18-year-old boy who's been planning. You need to plan to kill him. Why? Because you're a teacher. And teachers need to be murderers. They need to be ready to kill at any moment. And honestly, that's why I got into teaching. So I could kill an 18-year-old. It's not just about school shootings, though. Our schools are absurd in other ways as well. Take another potentially violent situation. I was teaching at South Eugene High School, public high school in Eugene, Oregon, when some student, we don't know who it was, wrote in black Sharpie on a bathroom stall that they were going to blow up the school on a certain day at 12.30 p.m. The threat was written multiple times, seen by many students, and reported. The school district investigated, and during that investigation, even though they had no idea who had written it, no clue, they determined that it wasn't a credible threat. So without knowing who had written it, or what the intents were, or what the training or experience of the person was, they determined that it was not a credible threat. So they emailed every parent and teacher in the district, every administrator, and they said, there has been this bomb threat at South Eugene High School. We've determined it's not a credible threat, and therefore we expect everyone to attend school. Then there was a follow-up email to teachers that we were expected to report that we needed to be at school that day, even if we felt there was potential that the bomb threat was a reasonably possible outcome that there could be an actual bombing that our school could actually blow up at 1230 on that day. So we were told that we could take an unpaid day or we could go to school. So a lot of teachers called in sick Of course, parents were like, this is ridiculous. And three quarters of our parents held their kids home from school that day. So it was me, a few other teachers, some subs, unmanned classrooms, and only a quarter of the school's population, students, there that day. Before school, we had a mandatory meeting in the office. So the few other teachers and I that decided to go to school that day went And in the office, there were a few police officers. Not a full bomb unit, just a few police officers. And they told us in this preschool meeting that for the next half hour, we need to scour the school, go in all the places that we normally went, and look for a bomb. So I raised my hand and asked the lead police officer, the sergeant on scene, I said, I don't know what a bomb looks like. What does it look like? And he's like, well, it's probably an IED, so it's a homemade bomb. So you want to look for something that might look like a bomb. And then another teacher was like, what, what would that look like? And he was like, well, some kind of capsule, holding something, wires, 
maybe some kind of timer, fuse or something. All the teachers then started talking, like, we don't know what that looks like. And the police officers were like, well, just go to all your classrooms and look for a while, see if there's anything that looks unfamiliar. So we did. We went to our classrooms and we looked for unfamiliar objects and we didn't find anything because apparently there wasn't a bomb. But I don't know how the school district determined that without knowing who the kid was and what their motives were for writing that on a bathroom stall. And at 12.15, all the students who came that day and all the teachers and subs who were there, we all left the building and we all stood a block away for half an hour until we all reasonably assumed that no bomb would go off. Then we all went back in school. And then the whole situation was so absurd that my ninth grade students and I decided to write with Sharpies on our t-shirts, we survived bomb day, exclamation point. And we did. And we all wore the same t-shirts later on another appointed day. Because schools are weird. And my experience in schools has been crazy. But later, I asked myself, wait, what if there had been a bomb? And what if it had been powerful enough to explode out a block? Or what if the bomber had made a bomb said it was going off at 12.30 on the appointed day, but detonated it the day before. We wouldn't even have searched our classrooms at that point. Or what if the bomber had made a bomb that we didn't find and instead detonated it an hour early or an hour late when all of us were in the building? Why didn't the school district call the police department? Why didn't the police department canvas the school with dogs, with a bomb unit. I asked myself, wait, why don't we protect students and teachers from potential violence? Do students and teachers not matter? There's so many pieces to all of this, but one huge piece is how we coddle males, and particularly male students. Educators have read studies going back decades showing females are more engaged in classrooms than males. We've read countless studies on this topic. There's no doubt that female engagement in classrooms is higher than male engagement in classrooms. We don't yet have transgender studies, but... One of my trans students told me that he was having trouble being accepted as male. So what he started to do was to act bored at school. And also at school, he started to make fun of students for whatever weakness he could perceive. Lots of public shaming and making fun of other students. And then he decided to be a total douchebag in his words in class to both his classmates and his teachers. And after doing these things, He was finally accepted at school as male. So to be male at a school, to be identified as male at a school, you have to be a disengaged and inappropriate, disrespectful student. That's what he told me. 
I checked in with other students, and they all said the same thing. Yep, that's male behavior in school. But I didn't really have to check in with them, because over the last 19 years, I've seen that. If you want to be a cool male in a U.S. public high school, you need to be a disengaged, disrespectful student in some way. So we all know about low male engagement, but what I find interesting is how that's changed teacher behavior. So according to the Brookings Institute, which is a Washington think tank that we know and feel comfortable is centrist because it's quoted by right-wing media and left-wing media. So according to a centrist source, teachers, because of more overt female engagement, have changed how they behave towards male high school students. Basically, the bar is really, really low now. So if I'm teaching a classroom full of high school students across the gender spectrum, females are going to be the most engaged students. That's given. So when a female says something on topic that's intelligent, I'm going to praise her for it. When a male student says something marginally intelligent or marginally engaged, I'm actually going to praise that male student more than I praised the female student who just engaged before him. More than I'm going to engage the female student who's more engaged right after him. Teachers in U.S. high schools, according to this study, have now lowered the bar so far that if a male student just stops playing his video game on his phone for a moment and says any slightly engaging comment, the teachers overly praise him. So male students are then reinforced in their behavior that most of the time they can be disengaged. Every once in a while they can engage at a marginal level and they'll be praised inordinately by the average teacher. This coddling is cultural, though it's going on at home as well. For example, if I call home because a girl in one of my classes is misbehaving, which is honestly very rare, the parents will say something like, oh, that's not okay. Oh, we'll talk to her immediately. As soon as she gets home from school, we'll talk to her. I'll say thank you. And then the behavior will change in class. But generally when I call home and say that a boy is misbehaving in my class, the mother or father of this boy will start with, well, how are the other boys acting in class? And I'll say, excuse me? I'll say, well, is he just doing what other boys are doing? Maybe he's following the crowd. And I'll say something like, actually, he stood up, said something inappropriate while standing. All his friends around him laughed, and then he sat back down and smiled really big, like he'd done something hilarious. And they're like, oh, so his friends reinforce this behavior too, so they're kind of in on it as well. And I'm like, well, he's the leader. And they're like, is he though? And I say, 
So are you going to talk to him about this behavior? And no joke, I've had multiple parents say, "Mm, it seems like you're picking on him a little bit. I don't know how I would be picking on him since he's the one who stood up and said something inappropriate. But at this point, I know that we're not going to go anywhere good with this conversation. So then it's better to just email home about these boys. So then it's on record. And then on record, an admin can see what you've said and what their ridiculously coddling illogical response is. And they'll still do it, but they'll put it in writing. Then you pass it on to an administrator. And an administrator will generally, because administrators are overworked and uh, they spend a ton of time doing meaningless bureaucratic tasks, because they have very little time, they'll generally shrug their shoulders and nothing will happen. The boy will continue to behave exactly how he behaved before. If it gets serious enough, then I'll usually kick the boy out of class, which then reinforces the parent's worldview that their boy is a sad victim of the system and that the teacher is the jerk and that the teacher inappropriately denies my child his rightful public education. So then sometimes they'll complain about a teacher. I've had parents complain about me because I hold their boy accountable. And sometimes the behavior is atrocious or illegal. For example, in my 19-year career, I've had about a dozen reports of sexual harassment by girls in my various classes. Kids generally hide things from teachers. They try to keep the teacher out of things. So if it actually gets to you as a teacher... It means it's been going on a while. It means the girl can't solve the problem on her own. It means her friends have tried to solve the problem, to help her. Other kids have stepped in. And at this point, it's so bad that she has no other choice but to tell the teacher. So maybe a dozen times in my career has a girl come to me and explain sexual harassment. And every single time. It is sexual harassment. What she describes, what she shows me, what she tells me, always it's sexual harassment. And then I do something really simple. I know my students very well. So I find a girl that's not friends with her. And I check in with that girl to see if the boy who's sexually harassing the other girl is harassing other people in the class. And what's interesting is every single time ever in 19 years, so a dozen times or so, that boy is harassing multiple girls in the class. And everybody knows about it before I know about it. So what do I do? Well, immediately, I'm a reporter. Immediately, I have to take that to my administration. And I want to take that to my, to my administration, except that, I know that my administration will do nothing. So I report the sexual harassment to my administrator. My administrator will immediately start investigating it, which means 
grilling the girl on the details and asking the boy's friends if he's likely to do these things. Then the boy will come in and completely deny everything. The administrator will write some report saying it's a he said, she said. The administrator won't pull random girls from the class and see that, yes, in fact, this guy is a terrible guy. Or the administrator will pull random people every once in a while, not most administrators, but will pull and find out that, yes, this guy is a terrible guy. But then we'll make the girl go on record with this accusation. And if she's unwilling to go on record, even though multiple girls have said that this guy is a terrible guy, the administrator will do nothing because uh, the girl didn't want to go on record. Now, there may be some stupid administrative rule that I don't know about. And that's why the administrators act like this. But then it would still be systemic. We would still have the same problem. And the only thing I know for sure is this. In 19 years, I've reported roughly a dozen cases of sexual harassment in my classes. Every single time I've corroborated the story with people who were not friends of the person accusing the boy. And of those dozen times I've reported it, the boy has been suspended a total number of zero. I've never seen a boy suspended for sexual harassment, even though we say we don't tolerate sexual harassment in our schools, even though we say it's illegal, nothing ever happens to the boy. When I was younger, I was expelled from three high schools. I was expelled on a gun charge, expelled again on a different gun charge, and expelled a third time for drugs. And the thing is, my consequences, my expulsions, even though it was difficult to get through high school, those consequences were good for me. I was held accountable for my actions, as people should be. I made bad choices, and I was expelled. I made more bad choices, and I was expelled again. I made bad choices a third time, and I was expelled a third time. But consequences are good for people. Because after my third expulsion, I had a choice to make. I was 17. I was going to end up in prison, or I was going to change how I lived. So I think consequences are good. But unfortunately, the bureaucrats, the administrators I've worked with, don't think consequences are good. For example, one time, a long time ago, I kicked a boy out of class. I didn't send him to the office. I just told him he wasn't welcome to ever come back. And I was told by an administrator that I was denying him his right to free public education. And I said, well, to be frank, he's an asshole and he's horrible to everybody in the class. He's horrible to boys. He's a bully. He's horrible to girls. He harasses them. He's a sexual harasser. He's entitled. He's white and tall and overly privileged. And I don't want him back. And this administrator said, well, that's not acceptable. You could get in trouble for kicking him out. 
And I was like, oh, I could get in trouble. But I'd be getting in trouble for doing the right thing, for protecting all the rest of the students. The administrator kind of blinked at me and said, we don't want you to get in trouble. And I said, I'd be okay getting in trouble for doing the right thing. And again, the administrator just sort of turned their head and blinked at me like they'd never considered the concept. And I said, I could get in trouble for doing the right thing, right? And the administrator said, well, it would break the rules. And I said, some rules are wrong, which the administrator also didn't understand. I said, you know, for example, like during civil rights, when people were arrested, but for doing the right thing. I said, I would be okay with getting in trouble as an educator for protecting the rest of the class from one terrible person. And the administrator just couldn't understand that at all. They never considered the concept that there were morals higher than rules. People have complained about me, but I've never gotten in real trouble as an educator. The closest I ever got to actually getting in trouble was this. I was teaching a creative writing class. And we were reading a textbook on writing poetry. And there was a chapter about love poetry. This was a textbook that I didn't teach first at my school. Another teacher had taught it first. It had been adopted by the English department. It was taught at more than 500 colleges and high schools. So it was something that was regularly taught. In this book, there's a chapter on writing arrows, love poetry. So I read some of the example poems and I give them an assignment. And I go home thinking, uh, I was a teacher today. I don't think anything special about the day. It was what it was. But, the next day I come into school and I'm called into the principal's office. And a boy in my creative writing class had complained about me to his parents. This 16-year-old boy felt so entitled that he complained to his parents and wanted me to get in trouble, wanted me suspended as a teacher. The 16-year-old boy. And you know why? Because one of the love poems in the adopted textbook was a gay love poem. It was two men physically together in this poem. Not in real life, but in a fictional poem. And this was so offensive for this entitled white 16-year-old boy who was straight. It was so shocking that he wanted me in trouble. So his parents didn't complain to me or even talk to me about it. They didn't complain to my administrator or even talk to them about it. This boy's parents went straight to the superintendent of all schools for the whole district, complaining about me as a teacher. And this is how entitled boys are in our world, in our education systems. The superintendent took this 16-year-old boy's complaint seriously and wrote my administrator about the complaint with the poem copied 
and said, I don't know how things are done in Eugene, but this is not how things are done in Missouri. That's what the superintendent said. He wanted my administrator to take care of the problem, which was me. So I said to the administrator, okay, well, has, have the parents read the whole chapter? They hadn't. I asked if the superintendent had read the whole chapter. Did he understand the context of the poem? I said, you can't judge a poem without any context. And uh, no, he hadn't read it either. The administrator said, you're in big trouble. They're calling a disciplinary hearing. So I was like, oh, no. I was actually concerned because I was young and dumb. I went to this disciplinary hearing, and I heard that I was going to get in trouble, that there was going to be a letter on my file, that I was going to get suspended, that I was going to lose pay. This was a big deal. I'd exposed my class to something shocking, gay love, as if love is different depending on the sex of the person. I was like, oh, okay. I, I was shocked. I, I didn't say much. I just was like, at this meeting, like, taking it all in, being berated by the district lawyer who represented the superintendent, who really represented a 16-year-old boy in my class. I had offended a 16-year-old boy in my class. This was big and this was bad. But then I, I, I talked to my union rep and my union lawyer. I went into the second meeting. I was like, hold up. And I went in with a totally different attitude. I was like, nah, screw these people. And I realized who I was and what I stood for. And that actually it was good for the boy to be exposed to something that made him a little bit uncomfortable because that's real life. We get exposed to things that make us uncomfortable all the time. While this poem didn't make me uncomfortable, I didn't even think about it twice because men love men in the real world. It wasn't something new to me. This was shocking to the boy, offensive to the boy, got him out of his comfort zone, which I realized was a good thing. So I said it in my second disciplinary hearing. But I went a lot further. I said, here's the deal. And the district lawyer tried to cut me off. And I said, you will listen to me right now. Be quiet. And she got quiet. And I said, here's the deal. You go ahead and discipline me. You do whatever you want. Hand out the biggest discipline you can. And if you discipline me at all, if you even put a mark in my record, if you even put a paragraph in my record for this, I will go to the two local papers and the state paper and I will go to my contacts at the New York Times and I will tell all about how I got in trouble for teaching a district-adopted textbook in my English class that included a gay love poem and that the superintendent of schools in Eugene, Oregon is homophobic, let alone these parents are homophobic, let alone this complaining 16-year-old boy is homophobic and you, by representing the district, are a homophobic lawyer. And if you want me to go to all those papers and tell the story of what's really going on here, you go ahead and you discipline me. This meeting's over. She tried to talk and I was like, no, shut up. And I walked out of that meeting. And you know, it was interesting. The very next day, I got a message that the superintendent had decided not to discipline me, even though this had been a concerning issue. And he wasn't interested in pursuing discipline any longer. Uh, uh.
just like Kendrick Lamar and Jalen Brown dedicate their rap album and their NBA playing career to the adults who told them that they'd end up in prison. I'm dedicating this episode to all the administrators I've worked with who haven't even suspended boys for breaking the law, who have no backbone when it comes to complaining parents who never do the right thing, even though they know damn well that those boys would be better served with suspensions or expulsions. So this goes out to you, you ineffectual administrators, you bureaucrats. And to everybody listening today, thank you. I really appreciate you listening to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast.